0: Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figger. She's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Christian Miller. Christian is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. He's a moral philosopher who specializes in character with special interest in the empirical study of the virtues and vices. He currently directs The Beacon Project, which studies moral exemplars, and he has recently completed a five-year research project called The Character Project. His latest book, which we'll be talking about today, is titled The Character Gap, How Good Are We? It's published with Oxford University Press. Moral thinking and evaluation often occur at the level of the person. That is, we find ourselves asking not simply, what what ought I do, but who should I be? Similarly, in assessing others, we tend to evaluate their behavior by means of concepts that ascribe to them character traits of various kinds. These are virtue and vice concepts like generosity or untrustworthiness, um, honesty, and so on. Now, a long tradition, going back at least as far as Aristotle, takes the person's character to be a fundamental item of moral evaluation. But an equally long tradition wonders what exactly character is. More recently, experimental studies of human behavior have given some reason to wonder whether there is such a thing as a person's character at all. Now, in The Character Gap, Christian Miller reviews the philosophical and psychological material pertaining to character. He defends the thesis that although there is such a thing as character, most of us lack both the virtues and the vices. So there's a lot to talk about. But why don't we start, as we normally do, by greeting our guest. Hello, Christian. Hello, thank you for having me on today. Well, thank you for joining us. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I uh, I was born in, uh, on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, grew up there for about seven years, but my parents moved down to Florida, where I would really say that was my childhood. uh, uh had a great time um, living near the beach in Florida, going out and surfing and boogie boarding and skimboarding and snorkeling and just Just kind of very, very special memories of that time uh, when I was growing up. Uh, uh, Then I was off to college at Princeton, where I majored in philosophy, followed by graduate school at Notre Dame, where I focused for my PhD in philosophy on the topic of the foundations of morality. Where does morality come from? Is it objective or relative? And then from there, I was uh, extremely fortunate to be hired by Wake Forest University, coming right out of graduate school, uh, where I've been for the last 14 years. So I got my PhD in 2004, started at Wake Forest, and I've just been uh, really happy here. So it's a wonderful school where I have an opportunity to work closely with undergraduate students, as well as uh, dedicate have dedicated time to my research. About uh, 10 years ago, I got especially interested in the topic of character. That was a big change for me, and this is what we'll be talking about today, I know. Um, but early on in my career, I was working mainly in the area of metaethics, the foundations of morality. And I got just really intrigued by empirical questions and philosophical questions about character, and kind of did a big pivot about ten years ago. Uh, and one result of all that is the character gap. The book will will be uh, discussing in a moment.
0: Well, fantastic. Can, can you tell us a little bit about some of the, um, uh, you've, you've, you uh, you've done a great job as a philosopher in getting, um, uh, uh, your research funded and in working outside of the confines of philosophy and, you know, working in research, uh, endeavors with people outside of philosophy. Can you tell us just a little bit about the Beacon Project and the Character Project, the, the, the two major research projects you've been involved with recently?
1: Sure. Uh, so about, 80 years ago, uh, we were uh, in discussions with the Templeton Foundation. That's the foundation that funds both these projects, because they were really trying to identify universities where a lot of activity was happening around a given issue. So, for example, they funded a big project on free will at Florida State. And in our case, they knew that there was a lot of work going on in character, both in the philosophy departments, but also in our psychology department, where we have some of the top personality psychologists in the world who were probing uh, the, the, the dynamics and the nature of character from a more empirical perspective. So they said, would you be interested in working on a project where um, you would be doing research at Wake Forest, but you would also be involved in funding new research around the world on the topic of character? And we said yes, and we had to go through a very arduous application process and it, with the external review and so forth. But the upshot of it was that we launched the character project, again about uh, seven or eight years ago, which um, had two main focuses. One was uh, internal at Wake Forest where we would do our own research. And then the second one, what I'm kind of most proud of, is the fact that we were able to support 28 scholars around the world in the areas of philosophy, psychology, and theology who were doing new and innovative projects that might not have been funded otherwise or supported otherwise. And we were able to give them either one or two-year research grants to carry out their research everything from uh, emergence of character in nine-month-old infants to a virtual reality replication of the Milgram experiments to a new account of the virtue of humility. So there was a lot going on with that project. Subsequently, with the Beacon Project, uh, we've done the same kind of thing, but with a much more narrow focus on what we call the morally exceptional, the best of the best, moral saints, moral heroes, moral exemplars, Looking at them, again, from the perspectives of philosophy, psychology, and theology, with uh, targets targeting younger scholars who have interesting and new ideas that we want to support.
0: Well, that's fabulous. Um, uh, Why don't we um, uh, uh, get to talk about the book? (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) we could talk about there too but
0: (laughs) yeah 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 um so why don't we just pick up with um with with what you had uh, just a moment ago characterized as sort of a pivot or a turning point uh and then um uh uh, even just as you were just saying that uh, so much of your work is um uh, at least recently is is focused on the the idea of character and exploring uh, uh, uh uh the different philosophical and psychological questions um with respect to character um so, uh, and, and you've, you've published earlier work on character as well. Um, maybe one place to start, uh, as a way into talking about the character gap, the book, um, is, can you tell us a little bit about why one might think that character is a good starting place for moral philosophy? Why, th- why think that that would be some place, uh, uh, to begin thinking about ethics?
1: Sure, and I wouldn't want to say something too strong here i wouldn't want to say that all of ethics is based on character or is reducible to character but i do think it's character is one central component of ethics uh, and we see this in our ordinary life so in our uh, 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 appraisals of other people we often use character appraisals so we talk about someone as a as a good person or a bad person where we mean uh, that they have a good character or bad character we often talk about their actions as the actions of an honest person or that was an honest action or on the flip side we say someone Acted cowardly, or someone did something that was unjust. So I think it's these are it's a familiar concept and a familiar uh, way of speaking in our ordinary discourse. And in a more philosophical um, perspective, it's a way of thinking about ethics that goes all the way back to the to the earliest days of ethics both in the West and in the East. So there's a rich tradition of thinking about character in, say, Confucianism, for example. I'm more familiar with. The tradition in the West, going back to Plato and Aristotle, so for example, in the case of Aristotle, Aristotle thought the life of eudaimonia, the flourishing life, um, what we might call uh, happiness, but I think it's better translated as flourishing or well-being, is centrally constituted by having a good character. In order to flourish as a human being, uh, necessary and central components is to be a virtuous person, a person of good character. Not the only thing, but a central thing. And this tradition is, is one that didn't die with Aristotle, it continued on after him into the Middle Ages. It's one that's ebbed and flowed in prominence, of course. Uh, a common narrative about the 20th century and ethical thinking has been that character was kind of marginalized for much of the 20th century. Whether this is historically accurate or not, it's just a common narrative you hear, where for much of the 20th century, people were focused on other concepts in ethics. Uh, people were focused on things like rights and duties and obligations and consequences and utility and and the like and pleasure and so forth but uh along came people like alistair mcintyre elizabeth anscombe philip Foot, michael sloat and some other figures who uh, were very influential in restoring the concept of character to discussions in moral philosophy. And with that, the concepts of virtue and vice uh, leading to the flourishing of uh, a, a different way of thinking about ethics called virtue ethics alongside the two main competing theories of deontological ethics, which has its um, main support in Kant and Kant, Kantians and well as utilitarians who find their main support in people like Bentham, and no.
0: Good. So maybe another sort of uh, uh, preliminary. Can you tell us a little bit about wh- what we mean by character? I think that it's uh, that you're right. That um, everyday assessments and appraisals do have um you know we sort of reach first for uh, uh uh ascriptions of different kinds of character traits like that was cruel <laughs> uh right. or or you know how generous or that was very kind so well. you know we we assess people's behavior by way of this sort of attribution to them of certain kinds of traits. Um but I take it that um by character we mean uh um something more than just a a a, a one off that um uh um that exhibits a certain kind of uh motivation, right? A character is is something more lasting.
1: Right, that's right, right. So the way I think about it and this is just my view and there are other ways of thinking about it too. The way I think about it, I think of character as above, involving character traits. Character traits are dispositions. The people, if they have them, they're, they're causally relevant dispositions, which when triggered can give rise to relevant thoughts, feelings, and actions. So it's crucial that for char- character, is not just a matter of behavior. It has psychological underpinnings in both thought and feeling or um, emotion. And it's traces back to causal dispositions. These causal dispositions are not just, as you said, one-off. They tend to be stable over time, and they tend to be uh, cross-situational as well. So that's a whole bunch of jargon, that's a whole bunch of abstract uh, language there. Let me give an example I think would make it a little bit more concrete. Right. So t- to take something like compassion. Compassion is a, today one of the, the kind of paradigm virtues, which is a you know, subset of the character traits, a compassionate person is someone who has the disposition of compassion, the virtue of compassion, a disposition, which, when triggered, gives rise to compassionate thoughts, thoughts about the suffering of others or a particular other person, perhaps. Compassionate feelings, so perhaps some motivation to alleviate someone's suffering, or and this is altruistic motivation, selfless motivation in the case of compassion. And then jointly, those compassionate thoughts and motivations can give rise to compassionate behavior, actual helping behavior aimed towards, say, alleviating the suffering of another person. But it's not just one-off. It's not just in one moment or one time when someone's dropped papers or uh, needs to be taken to the hospital. It's usually uh, expected that a compassionate person will exhibit these patterns of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in a variety of situations, where helping is in, is a, is involved, or there's an opportunity to help, that could be situations of being in the classroom, or the courtroom, at home, in the office, the bar, on the road, and stably over time. So it's not just a compassionate person's compassion today, but never again. A compassionate person is expected to exhibit compassion today, the next day, the next week, the next year, and so forth. So a number of features there: cross-situational consistency. Stability over time, with a, th- a thinking dimension, a feeling dimension, and a behavioral dimension.
0: Excellent. So, um, so we've got the view that sort of you know, character is this sort of complex of uh, various um, uh, dispositional traits. Um, and now, one one thing you haven't brought into the story, which is um, uh, a common um, uh, um, a common ingredient of um, talking about character, at least among virtue ethicists, is, um, uh, first of all, the distinction between good and bad character traits, right? These are the virtues right. and the vices. Right. Uh, and also, and this will be the question sort of – so can you tell us a little bit about virtues and vices and um, – uh, why, at least in the book, um, the the standard amongst especially Neo Aristotelians to identify virtues as the mean between two vices, why that's not uh, emphasized in, in in your account?
1: Yeah. So so um, so first, the clarification is really valuable. Uh, so I think of character as the broad kind of genus term here, and it comes in various species. One species are the virtues. Uh, so this going to be the, the intrinsically good, since we're focusing on moral character here in our discussion, the intrinsically morally good character traits. Then we have the vices. Obviously, they're the, the opposite. Uh, and we can come up with examples of each, I think pretty uncontroversial examples of each, say honesty and dishonesty or uh, compassion and cruelty. On the second question, uh, so this is just a little bit of background. First, this is an idea, the doctrine of the mean, it goes back to Aristotle most famously, uh, where for any... Um, virtue there's going to be opposing vices a kind of excess and a deficiency so there's going to be too much and too little and i i maybe i should have talked about that uh i probably should have i mean since it is so historically influential but um i didn't for a couple reasons One, it didn't seem like it would serve much purpose for what i was going to talk about in the rest of the book and two i think it's um it's not correct if whether this is Aristotle's view or not, at least let's just take this as a stereotypical view, uh, where for any virtue there are two and only two vices, and they have to, furthermore, be an excess and a deficiency. I think that's probably too limiting, too narrow, a way to think about vices. I don't see why, in principle, a given virtue couldn't have a multitude of vices, uh, more than more than two. So take uh, honesty, for example. I think their honesty covers a large amount of moral territory. And there are a number of different ways of failing, to be honest. So, for example, honesty pertains to cheating. Honesty pertains to lying. Honesty pertains to stealing. Honesty pertains to matters of promises, promise-making and promise-keeping. Honesty pertains to matters of deception. So uh, not outright lying, but giving a true but very misleading answer that is designed to set people on a wrong path. Those are five areas that fall under the purview of honesty seems to me you could fall short in one of them and not others and you have a vice uh, in that respect but then we've got at least five vices on the on the table as opposed to just two so I, i wouldn't want to be kind of uh limited by just thinking there has to be two vices
0: Excellent, excellent. Um that seems to me right for what it's worth by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. <laughs> so, um, so uh so can you um why is it important what what does what does you you mentioned the virtues as being sort of intrinsic goods, right? Um Ooh. or intrinsically good traits. Um uh, the the sort of traditional Aristotelian count of co- uh, account, of course, says that, you know, they're intrinsically good traits, but they're also sort of constitutive elements of human flourishing or human success. Um, does your what's 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 good about a good character? What's good about the about the
1: virtues? Right. Um, so I think there's more than one thing you could say here. And. It may be that I can't say anything that's ultimately very convincing, but at least it provides some initial evidence that these are good things. And especially in the book, I want to introduce this question because I want uh, people who may not have thought much about character to to think not only is this interesting, but it's important. This is something that I should – care about in my own life, not just as an esoteric topic, but something I should pay more attention to perhaps than I already am. And that, that, of course, it goes for me, too. Uh, so here are a couple considerations. Again, not maybe not demonstrative. Uh, one is uh, on instrumental grounds. Um, so just uh, when we think about the benefits of character, there's some good empirical research which suggests that developing a better character is actually conducive to our self-interests. Now, I don't want to put it too much. There are some limitations to this kind of argumentation, but I think it's important to highlight because, uh, for some people, when you're talking to them about character, they're not ready to hear some more highfalutin philosophical arguments or to be talked to hear about how it's intrinsically good to be virtuous. There, what's going to perhaps appeal to them the most initially might just be how it helps them, why it's, why it's a benefit to them. Um, so let's start there. Uh So empirical research especially in the field of positive psychology which has found relationships between particular virtues and other things we tend to care about in life so take uh, as one example take gratitude Uh, The more gratitude goes up the more things like life satisfaction go up Uh, more things like achievements go up Uh, stress goes down Uh, mood tends to go up Um, depression tends to go down lifespan tends to increase so since we care about these other things and they look like they're linked to possession of virtues and degree to which you possess the virtues, um, that looks like an interesting way to think about the importance of virtue. Now, a couple things to be uh, transparent about right from the start. These tend to be correlational studies. So the caus- causation is still not very clear. And if we just ended the discussion there, I think we should be dissatisfied as if becoming a virtue – virtuous person was all about just getting good things for yourself just trying to benefit yourself that makes it very egoistic and in fact may even be kind of uh, work against trying to be become a virtuous person maybe that becoming a virtuous person it crucially involves stepping out of your own uh you know self-centeredness and looking towards other things and other people so uh, uh one or two other points to make as well uh, you can say that, look, virtues are good to possess because they make society better off or, b- broadly speaking, the world better off. So would it be better to live in a society where there's more honesty and more justice, uh, for example, and more compassion for those who are in need? I would want to live in that society, not just because it would benefit me, but just because it's a society would be better off. It would be just a, a healthier, um, more vibrant, more flourishing society where uh, overall well-being would be prom- promoted. A third reason, and this is, depends on the audience that we might be speaking to, but there are all kinds of uh, reasons internal to religious practices and religious belief systems, uh, for promoting good character, whether that's Western religions, Eastern religions, uh, they often, uh, in fact, in every case that I know of, take good character to be important for, again, reasons internal to their way of thinking. And then finally, I'll mention this, um, it's the most kind of speculative and, uh, I think, um, perhaps unusual reason to mention, but, uh, Often, I I find that um, people who are presented with exemplars, and this connects to the current Beacon product and what we're working on now, um, are presented with, when they're presented with exemplars of good character, that can be more moving than any kind of philosophical argument. Um, That you see, you know, learn about the life of uh, Abraham Lincoln and how honest he was, or you learn about the life of Harriet Tubman and how courageous she was. Or you learn about the life of someone you've never even heard of, like in the the book I talk about, this person named Leonard Sosha, who for over a year hid 20 Jews in the sewer system of his small town in Poland. He was in charge of the sewer system after the Nazis invaded his town in World War II. He was able to hide 20 Jews in the sewer system. And each day for over a year, he had to crawl through the waste and the filth on his hands and knees through these different pipes to get to the safe uh, area he created for those people, I mean that's just so moving, so striking, and when you look at someone like that, that can be a source of admiration, so I admire that person, but also can be a source of inspiration so i I feel like uh I you know moved to become more like him, not in every respect and there are obviously respects in which i can't be can't be him, but in the respects that matters morally speaking uh I can be. Uh, given kind of reasons of the heart, perhaps more so the reasons of the head, uh, to try and change my life and become more virtuous. Excellent.
0: Um, so let's stipulate then, uh, you've given us some good reasons too that, um, that it's important to develop good character and that there are all kinds of reasons why, um, it's uh, the developing good character is something that should matter to us. Um, now part two of the book, The Character Gap, um, runs through, um, uh, a series of um uh empirical findings or mainly empirical findings uh some of which i'm i'm sure uh, our listeners will be familiar with uh but not all of which um that have to do with uh, the, the the empirical studies have to do with sort of um, uh, uh, discovering or exploring, you know, whether uh, stable character uh, traits of the kind that we are now associating with virtues and vices, whether they exist, and uh, how can they be primed or called upon or, or prompted. Um, uh and before we get to uh, uh your defense of of the thesis uh which is that um uh these stable character traits are are are, are, hard, are hard to develop and few of us have developed them um can you tell us a little bit about some of the um experimental material that you're that you're interested in particularly you talk about uh honesty and dishonesty and helping and bystanding and these kinds of things and there's some sure. really intriguing empirical results about all of these
1: Sure, I love to. Yeah. So, in that part of the book, I pivot away from philosophy and more into psychology. So, I'm interested in the question, which is the subtitle of the book: "How good are we?" And for that, I I can't just sit in my armchair in my philosophy office. I wish I could, but I can't. <laughs> and and just kind of figure out what the answer is by by punti- you know, by by thinking deeply. I need some data. I need some empirical information to wrestle with to to get some insight into how people are doing in general, and to preview the thesis a little bit but not say much about it for the moment, uh, what I end up with is thinking that we're pretty much a mixed bag, kind of a messy blend of good and bad. So in reviewing some of these studies, let me first highlight a few of the more positive studies, positive meaning that the, uh, they find results which I think are kind of encouraging and, and reflect well on us. And then I'll switch to some studies which don't reflect so well on us. So we'll do, we'll do the good first and then we'll say the bad for a little bit later. Excellent. Uh, so on the good side, let me... Um, hone in on the research done by a psychologist from the University of Kansas named Daniel Batson. He's probably my favorite psychologist, one of my favorite psychologists. I don't want to offend anyone out there. But, uh, and, and I really love the work he's done for the last 30 years on empathy and helping. So what he did was he noticed early on in his research that when you experimentally induce participants to feel empathy for the suffering of another person, whether it's someone they know or someone they don't know, it could be a complete stranger, uh, they're much more likely to help that person than our controls. So empathy has been well-known for a long time. He wasn't the first one to discover this. Is linked to uh, increased helping behavior. What he did was he took it to another level because he was interested in the psychological explanation for that result. What's, what's the motivational story which explains what's going on here? Is it an egoistic story, for example, that uh, – by doing this, you'll get praise from the person in need, or you get written up in the newspaper, or you'll alleviate feelings of guilt, or get rewards in the afterlife are all kinds of different egoistic stories you might tell? Or is it more of an altruistic story, where the motivation that's involved centrally is a real genuine care for the person in need, regardless of whether the helper benefits or not? If the helper benefits, that's great, uh, but that's not the goal. The goal is to help the person in need, and the benefits might come along as a side effect or a byproduct. Well, I won't go into all the details about his research, but what he did in, in, in broad outline was devise a dozens of different studies which would test these different egoistic hypotheses and say, well, look, if this egoistic hypothesis is correct, here's how we would predict people behaving. Let's test it. Do they actually do that? And if this alternative egoistic hypothesis is correct, let's see what people, if people actually behave that way or not. And so one after another after another, he tested these egoistic hypotheses and he found them, to, found them wanting, found them they were not successful and they were not backed up by the empirical data. The only hypothesis that time and again uh, predicted results which were borne out in the studies, that the studies actually found, was the altruistic hypothesis. Hmm. So that empathy increases helping behavior in virtue of leading to altruistic motivation to help those in need for their own sake. Now, let's let's assume it's good research and, you know, it needs to be replicated and others need to investigate it more. Let's assume it holds up. That to me is very positive And that's 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 commendable. Uh, if people are like that in general, uh, you know, big thumbs up. Period. Now, I wish I could stop there. Right? <laughs> I wish that's the end of the story.
0: We but, all know. We all know it, the stuff that's about to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: we all know the stuff. So uh, let me give you. One quick example that's familiar, so I'll just be quick about it. And then, uh, one example that maybe is less familiar. The, uh, the familiar one is the group effect. Um, the group effect, the bystander effect in psychology going back to 1960s. So people in the, the general phenomena is that people in groups in an emergency, when an emergency is going on and you're in a group, you're very unlikely to help yourself if no one else is doing anything to help. So then hence the emergency continues and people's suffering is not alleviated. This was experimentally de- demonstrated in a number of different ways, one of which involved participants coming into a lab one at a time, sitting down, taking a survey. A stranger would come in with them, take the same survey. The person in charge would leave the room, go into the next room, climb up a ladder. There would be this big noise of a crash followed by kind of sc- uh, cries of pain and my ankles broken and so forth. And if the, if you were the participant, and a person in the room with you filling out the survey did nothing, just continued to fill the survey, didn't respond, didn't help, you were very likely to not help yourself. In fact, only 7% of participants in this kind of design did anything to help. As compared to when it was the participant by him or herself with no one else in the room, then with the same emergency, 70% helps. <laughs> Although I still think that's not the best result of all. I mean, what is going on with that 30%? I mean, why didn't the 30% do anything? But still, it's, it's much better, okay. much better than 7%. Okay, so that's probably familiar to many listeners, and uh, that's been replicated time and again, with also with variations like electric shock or a bully beating up a child or someone stealing cash or whatnot. Uh, a different line of research, which I also find intriguing, uh, is much more recent. In the last 10 years, this has to do with cheating as opposed to helping and harming. And it, it uh, is based on a kind of experimental design involving taking a test and being paid per correct answer. So often students, but not always students, are brought in, uh, given a 20-problem test, told you're going to get 50 cents per correct answer. In the control version of this, they would take the test, do the best they can, or, or I mean, however, however they do it, uh, turn in their tests afterwards to the experimenter or the person in charge, Then they would be graded, they'd be paid accordingly, kind of cut and dry. On average, in one uh, published version of this research, they got seven problems correct, on average. The interesting version, of course, as you can imagine how this is going to go, is different participants, same tests, same monetary incentive, but this time, they were the ones who graded their own answer sheets, then shredded everything, all the materials were shredded, and they could verbally report how many they got correct. So there was no paper trail. Uh, and, they, you know, of course, that per- gives them a perfect opportunity, to be honest. I mean, they could tell the, the truth about how they, many they got right. But uh, on average, this group got, and in, in, we should say in quotation marks, uh, 14 problems correct. <laughs> so seven versus 14. It could be that they were so much better. They're so much smarter at solving these problems. I don't think that's the best explanation. I mean, I think it's obviously not the, the best explanation. So, um, So there's... A, um, a noticeable failure of honesty, I wouldn't want to generalize just from that one study to say that we're not honest at all or you know draw any grandiose conclusions, but I combine that with other research on cheating and draw a bigger picture. The, um, if, if I have a little bit more opportunity, sure. uh, the story doesn't end there though, because there, you know with that pretty cool, clever setup, there are all kinds of other things you can do. You can manipulate all kinds of other variables. So, for example, uh, if you um, see someone who, uh, in, in this, we'll call it the shredder condition, if you see someone who kind of publicly acknowledges that they're cheating, then the group tends to cheat more. <laughs> if, if there's this person publicly acknowledging that they're cheating, and you know ahead of time that you share the same birthday with that person. The Cheating goes up even more. So that's, 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 there's a kind of psychological identification with that person. But on the flip side, that was crazy. That was crazy. But on the flip, on the flip side, um, so here's to, to make it a little bit better. And it goes right into the mixed character, which we could talk about. Um, students who sign the honor code first before they take the test and then are given the shredder, shredder scenario, cheating disappears. The average drops back down or, uh, participants, it can be community participants, it'll have to be students, who uh, are asked to recall as many of the Ten Commandments as they can. It doesn't matter what they're religious, or not just that exercise of kind of doing a moral reminder, uh, then cheating disappears too. So this goes back, back to mixed character again. So I wouldn't expect a really dishonest person to be influenced by things like the outer Code or the Ten Commandments. I would expect them to kind of do that as a pro forma matter and then go right on cheating.
0: But they didn't. Yeah. But- so, can I just just a quick question about the the original setup with the with, with the, those who are in the the, the shredder conditions? Mm-hmm. Um. So they their performance, you know, went from the the, the seven the, the, the seven out of twenty uh, in the non shredder condition to fourteen correct answers out of twenty. Why do you think the, why do you think that they admitted to getting any wrong why didn't why didn't they all just say yeah I got them all right 100 percent yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, great question yep and that, that puzzled the researchers too so very early on that this kind of finding would come up over and over again. In fact uh, in one study they reported that cumulatively looking at 800 participants spread over a number of different iterations of the study uh, only a handful less than 10, Ever reported getting twenty problems correct. So just an extremely small number, and so that these experimenters and I'm I'm not um, qualified to evaluate these psychological hypotheses. I'll just report to you what they think is the most likely hypothesis. Um, They came up with this idea uh, that um, deep down, first of all, we we do believe in some sense that that cheating is wrong, but we also want to cheat. If we think we can get away with it, and it's worthwhile, the rewards are make it worthwhile. So if we stop there, then the puzzle remains because in this shared condition, you can get away with it, and it's worthwhile to cheat more. So you might not go for twenty and get say, uh, you know, ten dollars in payment. But then they so they add uh, a third element to this psychological uh, story, which is uh, we also thoroughly want to think of ourselves as honest people. Uh, it's not that we want to be honest people so we want to be able to think of ourselves as honest people. And so it's hard to just cheat with abandon and say 20 problems correct and still think of yourself as an honest person. But it's easier to kind of fudge it a little bit, just, you know, bend the rules a little bit or, you know, uh, a moderate amount and still be okay with that, um, that way of thinking about yourself. But that's why they also say they something like the Ten Commandments or the Honor Code are so effective because once you do those exercises, then you've you've kind of made your moral norm salient. Uh, you, you've got a moral reminder that's fresh in your mind, and it's very hard to then turn around and cheat while trying to think of yourself as an uh, as a person.
0: Right. And does this um with, what's the connection between this kind of result and um another that you you talk about in the book that I think is also among the, the more well known things among uh or, or results among philosophers about um cheating when you're in the presence of a mirror. Or yes. even just the the, the 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 crude picture, a drawing on a blackboard of an eye.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yep. So uh, the 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 mirror one is my one of my favorites. So that has to do with um, research in the 1970s. And I think it's worth noting that with the whole replication going crisis going on in psychology, that you know something like this, it's an old study. We want to see replicated, and we want to see um, you know how well it holds up also cross culturally, but, but anyway, um, still cool study no, no matter what. Uh, so this was, uh, different test of cheating where, um, people, the a participant would come in, in, into a room and told, uh, we want you to work on this task. And there's a timer and the timer set to five minutes. And when the timer goes off, please stop. So then, then, uh, a few, once they were all settled and, and, and ready to go, the person in charge would leave the room so that they came up with some excuse like have to go see to the next participants. Leave the room, the timer's going, and the person, the participants working away. Well, the question was, would the participants stop after the five minutes? And overwhelmingly, in the control condition now, uh, participants didn't stop. They kept going, and it wasn't just that they were finishing the, the one problem they were working on, they would often go on to another problem and another problem. <laughs> so that, again, is not... Does't prove anything, but it doesn't look so good either. The variation that you were alluding to is the the experimental condition where everything was set, kept constant it was all the same setup, except that participants were seated in front of a mirror Now it happened to be a two way mirror, and this is how the experimenter knew whether they were going over five minutes or not but there i think it's it's good reason to think that the participants didn't know it was a two way mirror and what happened here is uh the shooting was eliminated. Um, just being in the presence of the two way mirror, so, I mean, so, I'm sorry, of the mirror,
0: right.
1: You know, I want to be careful about that, um, seemed to have a big impact. Such that, um, what, why? What's going on? Well, first of all, the participant would, it, it was unavoidable that they would see that mirror. They would look up and see themselves in that mirror. That would just would, would naturally happen several times during the five minutes and now connect back back to our previous conversation the thought is well you're looking at yourself in the mirror so you're thinking about who you are even if it's just implicit or subconscious again it's you want to think of yourself as an honest person right and it's hard to think of you not as person if you're in the process of cheating right that's now that's fascinating stuff um
0: uh so let's tie this together because it, it it's all brought to bear on uh what what I would call the central thesis of of the character gap book which is um uh you know some people marshal these studies as a as a way of um drawing us kind of um a, a skeptical view about the very nature about uh, the very existence, rather, of character or the very existence of virtues and vices. Uh, you don't take that tack. You uh, marshal these experimental results to suggest that very few of us uh, uh, are uh, honest. But also, very few of us are dishonest. That is, the very same person is often, or for most people, we are we are neither honest nor dishonest. We neither exhibit the virtue of honesty nor the vice of dishonesty. Um, that we don't have stable character traits in either
1: direction. Is that right? That, 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 that's right. Um, so there, when we think about the empirical question of what our character is like, there. Are, a variety of different options on the table that we could choose from. I won't go into all of them, but I'll, I'll highlight maybe the, the top four. One is to say most people, and here I want to say most, when we say most people, we're going to be thinking about kind of people today, mainly in the West. Uh, of course, we don't have experiments that go back thousands of years. We don't have very good cross-cultural experiments either. So let's let's have, you know, keep that qualification in mind. Most people today, mainly in the West. Um, so one option is to say most people are virtuous. I don't go that way. Uh, Another option is to say most people are vicious or have the vices. I don't go that way either. Why? Well, for the reasons we've already covered. I think when you look at the experimental data, it doesn't paint a picture of behavior and also underlying motivation that aligns with the picture of a virtuous person that I have in mind and that I uh, outlined briefly in the first chapter of the book. But the same thing is true of the vices, too. When when I think about the experimental research, I see some very positive features of people's behavior and of their motivation, which doesn't align with a picture of widespread vice. So those are two options that I I set aside. The third option is to say there's no character at all. Uh, That that, that character is an illusion or a fiction. We should stop talking this way. Uh, Maybe we should think about, you know, just uh, forces in our environments pushing and pulling us in different ways, or maybe we're determined uh, by genetics or other factors to behave in various ways. I don't go that way either. Um, And I can say more about why after I can kind I of introduce my position? My position, interestingly, is actually Aristotle's position too, uh, in this sense. Both Aristotle and I, uh, kind for of very different reasons and very different uh, data we're looking at, thought that uh, most people are in a middle space between virtue and vice. Uh, that, the way I put it is we have mixed character. We, have, we, we really do have character traits. Character is real, it's not an illusion. Mm-hmm but it's not good enough to count as virtuous, and it's not bad enough to count as vice. So uh, it's it's a mixed bag, to use another metaphor. And the way uh, why I think this is still character is that uh, the psychological research does support the existence of stable uh, dispositions to think, feel, and act in various ways. Uh, so there are these psychological causes uh, in our minds, that influence our moral behavior and moral thoughts and feelings. But they just, when we morally appraise them, morally evaluate them, morally assess them, they don't meet the criteria for virtue, or particular virtues like honesty, nor do they meet the criteria for vice or particular vices like dishonesty. So the way to perhaps illustrate that, one way to illustrate that, um, goes back to what we were just talking about with, with cheating, so when I look at that research on the shredder condition and the cheating behavior, and not just that research, lots of other research too, but just since we've already highlighted that, uh, I think to myself, does this pattern of behavior um, look to me like the pattern of behavior of virtuous person an honest person? No. Dishonest person, no. But there's still a consistent pattern of behavior. <laughs> we can reliably predict how people are going to do in test-taking situations where there's a monetary incentive, and they have an opportunity to cheat and get away with it, no questions asked. And now we can also, rather reliably, if the studies hold up and the replications work and all that, um, uh, predict how they behave when there are moral reminders presented to them first, when they're given the honor code or when they're given the Ten Commandments or some other moral reminder. So we can actually uh, come up with not perfect predictions, but there are no perfect predictions here when it comes to psychology. You're not going to get that. Um, But, but you know, fairly useful helpful guides um, to predicting and explaining people's behavior in morally relevant situations. It's just that uh, the causes are not going to be the traditional virtues or the traditional vices.
0: That's interesting. Um... I know this is the, this next question is 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 a little bit outside of the purview of the book, but um I do want to ask even even if the 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 answer has to be sort of uh, quick and dirty um what, what do you think the implications are of this thesis that you know we we 've got mixed character uh, what are the implications are of that thesis for um, the kind of conception of moral responsibility that is that typically accompanies uh, 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 virtue theoretic views.
1: Right. So I, like you said, I've not really investigated in tremendous detail and I'm not, I should say, I'm not an expert uh, or not an expert in anything, but you know, I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> not, I'm, not, I'm not extremely, extremely well-versed in the contemporary literature in, in free world moral psychology. With that said, uh, a, a quick answer and I'll give you a longer answer. A quick answer would be to say, well, whatever Aristotle thought it was. Since after all, in Aristotle's view, he also didn't think most people had the virtues. He also didn't think most people had the vices. So he uh, was operating with a picture whereby uh, most people had neither to, neither of these traits too. And yet he thought people were responsible. Now, that's way too quick of an answer. But I'm just saying uh, I'm not the only one to go down this path. The longer answer I would give would be um, I don't see if there's a story to tell about more responsibility with respect to virtuous actions, a story to tell about more responsibility with respect to vicious actions, why that story couldn't also be told with respect to actions which stem from a mixed character. This is not a difference in kind. It's just a difference, uh, arguably, of degree. Um, We have a continuum here with virtue on one side, vice on the other side, and and a spectrum in the middle. Uh, So to make that a little bit more concrete, um suppose you have a kind of reasons responsiveness view of moral responsibility where you think it's really crucial that people be able to and we have to spell what ability here and capacity means and so forth. And this gets me into waters that I'm not, you know, very versed on, but uh, you know, you have reasons responsiveness view about responsibility where it it centrally involves um, being able to respond to morally relevant considerations. Well, of course a virtuous person could do that, irresponsible. Vicious person could do that too. Um, not not the same they're not responding to the same considerations but they're able to respond to morally relevant considerations but a person with his mixed character of course can do that too so a a person with mixed character is someone who uh, is paying attention sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously to morally relevant considerations in their environments sometimes they're responding to good considerations like the suffering of others in a case of empathy, like we talked about earlier, sometimes they're responding to not morally admirable considerations, say the opportunity to make some more money by cheating on the test. Uh, So their priorities and what they're evaluating might not be aligning with that of the virtuous person, but there's still lots of reasons for responsiveness going on here, and that that to me opens the door to their being morally uh, accessible and praiseworthy or blameworthy.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, So um – uh, we need to um, try to improve our characters by... Um, and maybe improve here means sort of establish uh, uh, some stability in the direction of virtue within our characters um, and so the book ends with uh, a couple of chapters discussing various strategies for um, developing or building or fortifying uh, uh, our characters um, and you you end with some advice and you uh, you 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 talk a little bit about strategies that you think are not likely to succeed or at least not Likely to succeed all on their own. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those discussions?
1: Sure, sure. So I wanted to make sure that I didn't end the book with part two. So I didn't want to end <laughs> with, you know, here's mixed character and, you know, sorry, see you later. Uh, nothing nothing we can do about it, you know, f- kind of figured it out. Uh, and I should say also that I haven't figured it out myself. So I'm just kind of, these are preliminary thoughts, um, some things that seem promising to me, but it all needs to be explored. And, more detail both philosophically and empirically, and especially the empirical part. We need longitudinal studies, we need to follow people over time to see what with a control group and experimental group to see what seems to work and what doesn't. Uh, So I I end the book then with with an additional section, as you said, starting with some strategies that don't seem to be too promising, and then going to some that show more promise. So let me say a word about each. On the not promising side, you might think uh, one strategy is to do nothing. Right. Uh, and there's it, more to be said about that than you might think. I mean, life presents us with certain challenges and we, you know, we have to respond to them whether we like it or not. And often those challenges will push us in different directions. So whether that's, you know, challenges associated with getting a job and keeping a job or, you know, relationships or starting a family or, uh, you know, uh, health challenges and so forth, those just come at us. Um, uh usually in the course of events. So um there's something to be said it just since over the course of a lifespan our character is going to change whether we like it or not. And it, you know, for uh, concretely conscientiousness for example, the trait of conscientiousness has been found to uh increase gradually over time. I I know p- perhaps just uh through the normal course of events. But I want to say that's that's true, but we could do better than that. So let's let's see if we can be more intentional and in taking it a step beyond doing nothing. Another strategy I uh, consider, it has to do but, but think um, is, is a mixed bag maybe is the right way to put it, is uh, to label people with virtues, even though you have good reason to think they don't actually have the virtues. Mm. So, you know, you might um, have good reason to think that this group of people it, uh, does not possess the virtue of honesty. Nevertheless, you label them or some individual person an uh, honest person in the hopes that with that label attached to them, them knowing that label is attached to them, they will be more psychologically motivated to try and live up to the label, uh, to actually demonstrate more honest behavior in the course of their lives. This is uh, something that's been explored psychologically going uh, in the research literature going back to the 1970s or maybe even earlier, and it's found to actually, uh, in the short run at least, promote better behavior with children and adults. There are some questions though, that might be asked about it. So, for example, uh, is this overly manipulative, uh, overly deceptive? Um, is this, uh, you know, acceptable kind of thing to do to essentially lie or deceive or at least manipulate people in this kind of way? Uh, another question you might ask is, what's the, the implication for actual virtue development as opposed to just short term better behavior? So, does it actually foster over the long run, the cultivation of the kind of dispositions we've been talking about to think, feel, and act in a better way? Or is it instead uh, encouraging uh, more motivations to maintain a good impression with others or make sure that other people still think of you as honest, regardless of how you actually are in your private life? So those are two I'll mention there as less promising. Uh, On the more promising side, I I go over a couple uh, uh, three or four, uh, maybe just in the interest of time, I won't spend, you know, all of our time on that, but let me highlight two of them. And these actually connect well with our earlier discussion too, so I think these are the best, best ones to highlight. One is role models. We've talked about role models several times. Uh, the idea is look to role models of a particular virtue or virtuous life in general as the basis for um, closing the character gap, which, you know, is the title of the book and the character gap is the gap between how we actually are and how we should be and the character we should have. Um, try and see, these people have done a better job perhaps than I have of closing that character gap. Can I look to them as a basis for learning how they did it as a source of inspiration in my own life and trying to become more like them? Not again, not in every respect. Uh, some respects are going to be impossible. I can't become president of the United States because you know, I can't you know, we Or I don't want to, at least. Um, so I'm not going to work to admire uh, and emulate Abraham Lincoln in that respect. But when it comes to Abraham Lincoln's honesty, I could perhaps learn more about his life, uh, see how he behaved in very specific situations where he was willing to lose a court case, for example, uh, once he determined the truth of what was going on with the client, mm-hmm. uh, or walk two miles to return some change that some, a, a customer in a shop uh, had forgot to get. Um, so that could be, I think, and and, and there's some evidence to support this, uh, a, a basis for trying to move the needle on virtue, not just intellectually, but also imp- uh, emotionally and uh, kind of in, in, at an inspirational level. Finally, uh, the last strategy I mentioned here I call getting the word out. Mm-hmm. And this is more a kind of educational strategy where the idea is that familiarity, greater familiarity with some of the obstacles to being virtuous can help us overcome those obstacles. So that, that some of what's going on with the character gap is that there may be obstacles in our own psychologies, in our own minds, which uh, we don't even know about, which are or at least the extent to which we uh, of them functioning, we don't know about. And that if we just learn more about them, we could counteract them and work against them. So the way this connects to our earlier discussion has to do with the bystander effect. Again, the idea that in group settings, if other people aren't doing anything, we're much less likely to do anything ourselves, even if there's an emergency going on, even if someone is in desperate need of help. Well, what if that? effect became better known and of course it is becoming better known in society now there's all kinds of training programs aimed at combating it and so forth could that be an effective way to lessen its impact and i think there's some preliminary evidence to say yes so in a study in the 1970s they um knowing the research that had happened in the 60s these psychologists had a control group with a stage of emergency and again almost no one helps in a group context where there wasn't helping going on um, But the the clever thing about their study was take another group of participants, and these were students, student participants, have them attend a lecture on the bystander effect, learn about some of the psychological research, and then see if that would make a difference in the same emergency. Not just the same emergency that day. Of course, when it's fresh in our minds, and yeah, yeah, it makes a a difference, but you know, but not so surprising. I mean, they just went to a lecture after all. But they did it uh, two weeks later. Two weeks after the, hearing the lecture, um, did that have any noticeable difference in the same helping task and the answer is yes, about twenty uh, percent versus forty two point five percent difference uh, our helping occurred in the two uh, conditions: twenty percent in the control forty two percent forty two point five percent in the experimental condition, so it did make a noticeable difference didn 't solve all of our problems of course, but if if I could get that kind of effect out of a a lecture, I'd be really happy. I doubt, any, I doubt any of my lectures ever have that kind of effect on students. Um, so that's the fourth strategy I'll mention.
0: Well, fantastic. You know, Christian, you've been very generous with your time. So um, I usually end these um, interviews by uh, asking authors uh, what their next project is. Can you tell us a little bit about where, where you're headed next?
1: Sure, I'd love to. So after working on this topic of character for a while and reading this empirical literature, I came to the realization that. There's almost nothing done by philosophers and to some extent by psychologists, too, on the virtue of honesty. Honesty is a stunningly neglected virtue in academic research in this area. You might say in, in life in general, but and that's part of what the character gap is all about. But uh, So to quantify that, in philosophy, there has not been a single article in a major peer-reviewed journal in philosophy in the last 50 years. On the virtue of honesty. Wow. Uh, there have been, you know, discussions of what the definition of lying is, or whether lying is better or worse than deceiving people and this kind of thing. But uh, actually analyzing the virtue of honesty and, and, the, and the facets and its parameters and the motivational elements and the behavioral elements and what makes it good and and so forth. Um, nothing out there, uh, at least in, in the way I just specified. So to make a long story short, uh, my. Next project, which I'm uh, kind of in the midst of now, is writing a book on the virtue of honesty that's both informed by philosophy as well as psychology.
0: Well, that's um, that sounds fascinating, and um, that it's uh, one of the um – Obviously unjustly neglected <laughs> uh, issues in in philosophy. Who would have thought that uh, oh, no. that there are such things anymore? With uh, so many <laughs> journals and and so many people publishing in them these days, it's hard to imagine that some major and obviously important topic has hasn't really been <laughs> addressed. But I'm glad you found it, and um, uh, I'm also glad that, that 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 you're writing on it. Uh, and I'll I'll look forward to uh, to seeing that book when it comes out. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, thank I'm you, Christian, uh, for joining me today on the on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Me too, uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining our discussion. Uh, we were talking about Christian Miller's new book, which is titled *The Character Gap: How Good Are We?* It's published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for tuning in, and bye for now.